Second Samuel, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Our text today is a difficult text. We hear it and we come away with many questions. If, if God is a God of justice, how can he allow or demand that innocent men pay the penalty for the crimes of forebears? Does the miscarriage of justice perpetrated by King David create a new historic injustice that must somehow be atoned for at some time later? Given our situation as a nation, does this text require of us to hunt down the descendants of those first settlers or subsequent colonists who massacred Aboriginal Australians and issue them with lengthy, lengthy jail terms or even capital punishment. And in response to floods and drought and bushfires and COVID-19, should we be praying to God as to why this has happened and thereafter seek to make atonement for whatever particular sin it was that has given rise to this particular catastrophe or disaster? Well, this text is a difficult text and it requires of us some serious work in order to understand it. Um, and also, of course, to see how we might apply it. But I believe that such work will pay handsome dividends, so let's do it. Uh, this morning, I'd like to break our work into three parts. Firstly, we'll look at the text to determine its meaning. Secondly, we'll think about its application, and thirdly, we'll talk about its significance. So then, firstly, the text and its meaning. What primarily is this text fundamentally about? What is it primarily about? Well, the text actually primarily is about God saving David. What we might not immediately see or understand is that an extended famine puts the rule of David, his kingship, his rule and his line, a famine puts all of that in jeopardy. When, when famines come, starving people start to move in large numbers, especially country folk, farmers and farm workers, mass migration from country areas into cities. The resources of cities are put under enormous strain. With large numbers of malnourished people now living in cramped and difficult conditions, epidemics soon occur. Dysentery, typhoid fever, cholera, etc. And with all of these difficulties piling one on the other, fighting inevitably breaks out. It was the widespread assumption of the ancient world that such things, pestilence and plague, famine and war, such things signalled divine displeasure, especially divine displeasure with rulers. Heads would have to roll. Primarily, this text is about God saving David, from whom would come the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. Secondarily, this text is about covenantal unfaithfulness. This is a text about what it means to break covenant. 
Let's uh, take a closer look at the text then. Uh, verse 1 sets the scene in double quick time. Uh, three years of successive famine gets David's attention. Uh, this means, of course, three years of famine means three years of drought. Uh, the land of Israel was totally dependent upon rainfall and other forms of precipitation for moisture, for water. And they understood that just like everybody else, they, or just like most people, they, they lived under the random vagaries of climate. Good years, bad years, so-so years. But three years in a row suggested to David guilt within Israel. Uh, the, the terms of the covenant, that covenant that God had made with his people through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, it included, in the fine print, it included crop failure as a consequence for failure to obey all of the laws and commands. Failure to live obediently. So, David sought the face of the Lord. Uh, that statement is surely uh, a summary. Um, simply put, that phrase means that David prayed, uh, but perhaps he committed himself to a season of prayer, fasting, and worship. And the phrase, the face of the Lord, uh, is literal. Uh, it's a phrase that the NIV would usually translate, the presence of the Lord. David is spending time in God's presence, and for David, that means prayer in the temple. The phrase, the Lord said, is also probably a summary. We do not know how God spoke to David. An audible voice, perhaps, or maybe through a prophet, or perhaps through the ministry of a priest wearing uh, the ephod and using uh, the Urim and Thummim. We don't know how God said it, we just know what God said. And God's reply, the Lord's reply, is also something of a summary. Saul, blood guilt, Gibeonites. The backstory is provided in verse 2. Now, for us as readers of the Bible, we already know the story of the Gibeonites, but not actually in connection with Saul. No, actually in connection with the stories of Joshua, generations earlier. Stories from when the Hebrews first entered the Promised Land. Stories from the time of conquest. In chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Joshua, we read about what happened. The Gibeonites were a people who lived in the town of Gibeon within the Promised Land, quite close actually to the city of Jericho, um, believing correctly that these invading Israelites would wipe them out, they came to them um, uh, um, and they tricked them. The Israelites, of course, had already destroyed the cities of Jericho and Ai. So they sent a delegation. And the delegation was disguised, disguised so as to look like they'd travelled from an exceedingly far distant place. And when they got there, they said, oh, uh, we're not from around here. No, 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 no. We're from another place a long, long way away. You wouldn't even know about that place. Um, so why not? make a treaty with us. Uh, we've heard that God is with you. And so that's what the Israelites did. Under the leadership of Joshua, who looked closely 
at the evidence, the moldy bread and the worn-out clothing and sandals, but who did not pray. So the Israelites made a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites. And when the Israelites realized that they'd been conned, they were pretty annoyed about it. And they decided to, to, to keep their covenant of peace, but to make the Gibeonites outsiders and second-class citizens. They would have to do all the manual, menial work. But it's a covenant, it's a covenant, and they would not be harmed. They would keep their covenant of peace. But of course, in our text today, it isn't talking about Joshua. No, it mentions Saul. And there's been no previous mention of any such incident in Scripture earlier. We know about Saul's campaigns against the Philistines and against the uh, Amalekites, but we, we know of no com campaign, campaign against Amorites generally or Gibeonites specifically. So we haven't heard about this before, but it does sound just like Saul. In his zeal for Israelite welfare, he did something vile. He tried to wipe them out and he broke covenant with them. So covenantal unfaithfulness is indeed the problem. Not in the first instance, faithlessness unto the Lord, but rather faithlessness with respect to the Gibeonites. God demands that his people keep their promises just as God himself keeps his promises. Well, the problem is articulated by God, but not the solution. David asks not God for the solution, rather he asks the Gibeonites. And David's opening offer is money. The word in verse 3, um, atonement, makes us immediately think in terms of sacrifice, something done to cover over sin. And that is exactly right. The word is rich in those associations, but the word also stood for ransom price. Um, the half a shekel of silver, which was to be paid annually by every male 20 years uh, and older, Exodus chapter 30, whenever there was a census. David is offering compensation. The Gibeonites' answer to this offer is confusing and awkward and reflects the fact that as outsiders and second-class citizens, they have no rights or status at all. They can't ask for this or that. And so David is forced to ask his question again, pressing them for a clear way forward that is agreeable to them. What are you saying for me to do for you? And so they make their demand, and their demand is this. Seven men, seven of Saul's descendants, seven being the number of holiness, seven being the number of completeness, seven men are to die for Saul's covenantal unfaithfulness, for his betrayal. Well, uh, seven, symbolic, symbolic number, holiness, completeness. Um, I think we can safely assume 
that this proposed solution would have been deeply repugnant to David at a number of different levels. Firstly, the solution proposed by the Gibeonites is itself an injustice to the Hebrew mind, punishing innocent men for the guilty behaviour of others. As it says in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 17.15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Furthermore, secondly, they are asking David to condemn sons for the sins of their father. And this too, secondly, was an offence to the Jewish mind. Deuteronomy 24.16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. But Israel was unique in the ancient Near East with respect to these things. In the ancient world, it, um, in the ancient Near East, it was widely understood that children and sons in particular could be and should be at times punished for the crimes of their parents. So then, uh, for example, according to the law codes of many ancient Near Eastern nations, if, say, for example, if you were a builder and you built me a house, and perhaps that house collapsed, killing my family, killing my children. Well then, according to those law codes, it is right and just, these people believe, it is right and just for me to punish you by killing your children and killing them in your place instead of you. In contrast, and uniquely, as already stated, the law of Moses forbade children being killed for the crimes of their parents. David then, in agreeing to these Gibeonite demands, is disobeying the law of Moses, but doing this in order to be faithful to a covenant and faithful in the sight of non-Israelite eyes. He must do what is just in their eyes if they are to Bless the Lord's inheritance. So then, however, however David may have felt about their proposed solution, he nevertheless agrees to it. David undertakes the selection of victims himself, making sure to avoid Mephibosheth, with whom, as we already know, David has his own covenant of peace. Two sons of Saul and five grandsons are chosen, one of whom is also happened to be named Mephibosheth. We can only guess how the seven men in question felt about the whole thing and what they might have had to say about it all. The narrator blanks all of this. For us, uh, they are silent like uh, sheep uh, before the shearer. These men were transported to Gibeon where they were killed, uh, literally hung. Uh, on a hill, in the presence of or in the face of the Lord. They are offered as an act of worship, as an act of human sacrifice. The narrator then shifts our attention to the behaviour of Rizpah, daughter of Eiyah, 
who was mother of two of the men who were killed. She's mentioned three times. It's actually only on the third occasion uh, of the mention of her name that we find out that she was Saul's concubine. I, I spoke about concubinage, uh, the practice of having concubines. I spoke about concubinage last week and mentioned the fact that in the Bible, stories with the word concubine in them don't end well. Perhaps this thing may have been different for poor Rizpah. If Rizpah had been afforded the status of wife, not concubine. Yet and nevertheless, Rizpah's behaviour is presented to us in great detail that we might wonder at her maternal faithfulness and courage. Mizpah at extraordinary pain and cost. We can, we can barely imagine. She um, undertook an extraordinary vigil overseeing the decomposition of the bodies over a period of some weeks. Herself constantly in the elements and probably suffering all kinds of deficiencies and discomforts and obviously at great personal danger, she makes sure that no birds eat the dead bodies by day nor any wild animals by night. One highly probable reason why she did that was that for a body to be hung on a tree meant that that person was cursed by God. For a body to be devoured by animals likewise symbolised being abandoned by the Lord, abandoned as covenant unfaithful. And in fact, these seven men are all dying indeed to fulfil a covenant. So for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of what's right and true, she will not let these holy bodies be desecrated by carrion feeders. Rispa is a model of submissive protest, of non-violent resistance. Through her silent protest, David must face the fact that his policy, right or wrong, his policy has inflicted profound loss, grief and suffering on others. And his response is also to be exhorted to covenantal faithfulness, collecting the bones of all of the deceased together in order that they might be buried in the tomb of their ancestor, belonging, not rent asunder, belonging in death as in life. David is encouraged by her example to act faithfully. Well, uh, these details may help us come to terms with a story that is indeed shocking, a story whose internal morality and understanding of law is so very different to our own. We have noticed that whilst the problem came from God, he articulated the problem but not the solution. The solution came from the Gibeonites. The solution that the Gibeonites requested wasn't one that could be reconciled with the Bible's own view of law and righteousness. We can therefore know that God uh, wasn't happy with what happened, and we can safely presume that David, Rizpah, and many others were extremely unhappy about what had happened, not least, of course, 
Almoni, um, Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab. And we can note that we're not being asked to affirm or agree with what happened, with something that, from our point of view in history, looks indeed like a complete travesty of justice, not a restoration of justice. Yet and nevertheless, even with these difficulties, the solution was acceptable in God's eyes and, after these things, God answered prayer on behalf of the land and there was rain. In discussing the meaning of this text for ourselves, then, let's uh, talk about application and then significance. Application. Given that the primary lesson of this text is that God saves his servant David and that he is faithful to his covenant, God is faithful to his covenant, the primary application of this text is that we too, as servants of God in Christ Jesus his Son, we should remember to trust God to save us. That's the primary lesson, trust God. The secondary lesson of this text, wherein things get a little bit more complicated, is that we, like God, should be faithful with respect to others as well. Um, this whole passage, in a way, is like a sermon illustration to the commands of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Set up, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way. Together, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Reconciliation with others, when, when we are the ones who have sinned, reconciliation is of extreme importance to God. At a tertiary level, the text raises for us questions that it would not have raised for its original audience. One question, for example, is this. If a three-year drought or famine spoke of God's displeasure with the nation of Israel, and what was written into the contract, into the uh, Mosaic contract. What's, what's the contract? What's the covenant we have with God through the blood of Christ? Droughts, famines, bushfires, floods, COVID-19. Is God angry with us? Is God punishing us? Should we be seeking the face of the Lord in order to know what to repent of, in order that this plague might depart from us and the land be healed? Well, that's an extremely good question and the right one to ask. But I'm not going to answer it in this sermon because I just don't have time. However, so as not to uh, frustrate or disappoint, I'm going to present um, another video directly answering that question.
and it will be uploaded immediately following the conclusion of this service. For those of you who would perhaps like to, to watch it later at your leisure. And that talk is entitled Covenant, Crisis and COVID-19. A second question is like it. How might this text instruct us with respect to our own Australian national historic injustices? Well, that's another very good question to ask. And the text begs comparison with Australian Indigenous reconciliation issues, especially when we consider that the Israelites intentionally treated the Gibeonites as outsiders, as second-class citizens. And since European colonisation, Aboriginal Australians have been treated as outsiders and as second-class citizens in many formal and informal ways. Our text today shows us that God cares for the outsider and is not willing for injustice against the Gibeonites to be swept under the carpet. In our text, the Israelites cannot advance because they have sinned against the Gibeonites and broken a covenant of peace. And they must seek Gibeonite forgiveness by way of Gibeonite terms. When, in 2008, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised formally on behalf of the Government of Australia for all such laws and policies linked to the stolen generation, such as, uh, to quote, inflicted profound loss, grief and suffering on these our fellow Australians, unquote, we can safely assume that this act of recognition and repentance had enormous influence in the spiritual realms. As has been pointed out to me by others, that wonderful act would have been yet more meaningful if it had included a formal response by representatives of the stolen generation, such that the request for forgiveness could have been formally recognised and received, that that forgiveness could be formally granted and the terms of reception made clear. At the time, many Australians didn't understand how we collectively could be asked to be contrite and apologetic, how we could be asked to say sorry over something that we ourselves had had no actual involvement in. Likewise, David could have complained, my party wasn't involved in making that decision. It wasn't the house of David, it was the house of Saul. He was in power at the time. And furthermore, I was only a kid. How can you hold me responsible? I was looking after sheep at the time it all happened. But David did not make that complaint because he understood that whilst he may or may not have inherited the guilt, he had certainly inherited, by way of office, the responsibility to make things right. And as our God is a timeless God of justice, historic injustices will continue to call out to him for answer. We may or may not have inherited the guilt, but we have certainly inherited, by way of office, the responsibility 
to make things right. And so now lastly, to the significance of the text. The significance of this text is plain. It is the powerful way in which it points to Jesus and his atoning death on the cross. The seven men died as a holy offering to the Lord in order to atone not for their own sins, but for the sins of others. They were scapegoats. Condemned by the Jewish leadership, they were handed over to the Gentiles to be put to death. For the sake of others, they were counted among criminals, although they themselves, humanly speaking, had done no wrong. They were hung on a hill, probably on scaffolds or on trees. Mary, in prototype, was there to mourn her son. They were buried in the tomb of a rich man, buried with dignity in the hope and expectation of a resurrection of the righteous. It was by their blood, and only by their blood, that there was forgiveness of Saul's covenantal unfaithfulness and reconciliation between Israel and the Gibeonites. We have here, in human prototypical uh, terms, something uh, that would be perfected by God himself. Jesus died on a cross, hung on a tree, on a hill, counted as a criminal. Uh, he, he was the scapegoat, the, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He died with two terrorists, one on each side, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Buried in the tomb of a rich man, he was buried with dignity and in the hope and expectation of a resurrection of the righteous. By his blood, we have forgiveness of sins and reconciliation between God and humanity. The human copy that we read about in 2 Samuel 21 was imperfect and limited. Imperfect, the punishment that brought peace was itself at so many different levels, itself an injustice. And it was limited. Uh, seven men died indeed for the sin of one man, making uh, only local uh, reconciliation. In contrast, the divine original is perfect and unlimited. Perfect. God took our punishment upon himself. The Father and the Son united in their desire to work out our salvation in that way. It was perfect and it was unlimited. Jesus, the man without sin, the lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice, died for the sins of the whole world. And in and through Jesus, we have the resurrection, our sure hope and expectation. So then, the significance of this text is that it points people to Jesus. And insofar as God's call on our lives is indeed to point people to Jesus, those seven men, Armoni and Mephibosheth and their five nephews, those seven men lived and died well. 
their lives telling the Jesus story and pointing people to Jesus. And insofar as this is true, they show us the way to go, especially that we might endure under unjust suffering in the knowledge and hope and certainty that God will redeem our sacrifice. It will point people to Jesus. It will effect reconciliation. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.